Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, William Imboden, chair of the Clement Centre for National Security at UT Austin and author of the new book, The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War and the World on the Brink. Uh, Well, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be with you. Congratulations on the book. So why was Reagan the peacemaker? Well, thank you very much. And uh, the title comes from a few sources. The two main ones are Gorbachev and Reagan himself. Uh, Gorbachev uh, made a surprise visit to Reagan's memorial service uh, in 2004 and said of his friend, he was the great peacemaker. Uh, of course, paid tribute to you know Reagan's partnership with Gorbachev to reduce the threat of nuclear war and then to bring the Cold War to a peaceful end. And then Reagan himself, a number of times over the course of his presidency, and then in his um, final valedictory foreign policy speech, uh, referred to himself as a peacemaker, his aspirations to be be a peacemaker. It's important to stress, of course, I've gotten a number of questions about the title, that Reagan believed in peace through strength and peace through the expansion of freedom. So uh, it was not necessarily a peace through appeasement or surrender to, to Soviet communism, but rather Uh, His vision was, of course, the defeat of Soviet communism and yet doing it peacefully, uh, keeping the Cold War cold and not allowing it to turn hot. Yeah. And as I recall from the book, that that one of the points that Gorbachev made was that Reagan decided at the right time to be a peacemaker. Yes, exactly. Those were those were his exact words. Uh, And, uh, you know, Reagan uh, throughout his presidency had a two pronged uh, strategy towards the Soviet Union of pressure and outreach, of force and diplomacy. And he spent much of his first term as president trying to find a Soviet leader who would be reform-minded with whom he could negotiate. And of course, you had that series of you know sclerotic troglodytes in the Kremlin, Brezhnev and then Andropov and then Chernyenko, uh, none of whom were very interested in real negotiations uh, with Reagan, none of whom were very responsive to his outreach. And so Reagan, you know, continued the pressure, the military modernization, the economic pressure, the Reagan doctrine of supporting anti-communist forces around the world, you know, the ideological campaign of denunciations of Soviet communism and its depredations and, and so forth. Um, and when he, when Gorbachev finally came along and Reagan felt like, uh, here at last is the reformist leader I've been looking for. Uh, and here's someone I can partner with to to reduce you know to reduce the threat of nuclear war and bring the Cold War to a peaceful end. Uh, that's when he uh, was able to move you know much more assertively in the direction of you know major arms control agreements such as the INF Treaty, uh, and and you know a, a hope for an eventual realization of peace between the two countries. And I guess I mean it's that journey in many ways that makes Reagan so interesting for historians because when we look back to the early 1980s, when he was elected in 1980, for example, uh, he was seen by many as being a belligerent warmonger. Many even feared that he would be likely to start a nuclear conflict. So the, the, the contrast between the way he was seen at the time and this, this idea of the peacemaker is, is really quite stark, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And that's one reason why I, I love the craft of history is, and of course, I'm speaking with a fellow historian here, but as you know, <laughs> It, sometimes it takes the passage of time for partisan passions to cool, for us to see how events play out, and more practically for archives to be opened, uh, for new sources to be uh, available. 
to see, uh, for scholars to see what was happening behind the scenes, which may not have been apparent in the speeches or the headlines. Uh, and it's those different strands taken together that made this a good time, I think, to revisit Reagan's legacy and to write a book like this. And to now see that, you know, even behind the scenes uh, in the early 1980s, Reagan was very mindful of this image of him as a reckless cowboy and belligerent warmonger and uh, was very committed even then to a peaceful outcome in the Cold, in the cold War. Um, but, uh, you know, circumstances obviously had to change. Yeah, and how do you deal with the rewriting of history which has gone on that uh, on the one hand, you have many people who say, well, you know, it was inevitable that the Cold War was going to come to an end, which is not how it felt in the 1980s. Equally, you have to, we have to remind ourselves that many conservatives, uh, not least many of those who now express slavish devotion to him, were not actually Reaganites uh, and, and saw him as being weak and possibly even a sellout. Yeah. And, and again, this is another advantage to, to writing narrative history, uh, as, as I did with this book, uh, and to have the story unfold chronologically as I hope to disabuse readers of that inevitability fallacy uh, of the sense that, of course, the Cold War would end peacefully because of structural factors in the international system or the internal rot in the Soviet system. Sure, those were a part of it, right? It's a complicated story. But Going back and looking at history as it was unfolding, as it appeared to Reagan and his team at the time, somewhat as it appeared to the Soviet leadership, uh, and as it appeared to many of Reagan's critics at the time on both the left and the right, it's a very different story. I mean, you know, no one knew how things were going to play out. You know, Reagan was confident in his vision, but he was he was not certain that this was all going to work. And, you know, uh, for a time he had, you know, horrible, endured horrible abuse and brickbats, mostly from the left, who, who again, as we mentioned earlier, thought he was a, a reckless warmonger. But then once he started forging that partnership with Gorbachev and doing things like the INF Treaty, abolishing an entire class of nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons, uh, he took tremendous criticism from his own conservative base, which thought that he was going soft or, or becoming a sellout or being, being duped by Gorbachev. And so, uh, you know, things looked very differently at the time as the history was unfolding. And that's what I try to recapture in the book. Yeah, and I definitely think that that narrative approach uh, is one of the things that makes the book so enjoyable and so compelling. You, you quote George Shultz, actually, uh, fairly early on, uh, talking about the simultaneous nature of decision-making and problem-solving. And you also say that at different times in the book, uh, it, this almost occurs uh, like whiplash as these different problems confronting the, the president. So what you've got here uh, is definitely trying to understand the complexity of policymaking in real time. Yeah, and that's where I, at the you know, risk of immodesty, thought that I had some advantage in writing the book as a former policymaker. You know, in a previous career, I spent quite a bit of time in Washington and some overseas and had worked at the White House and the State Department and had seen firsthand the complexity of the policy process and also had just, you know, senior leaders, presidents, secretaries of state are inundated with 20 or 30 or 40 difficult issues at every moment, uh, you know, political pressures and media pressures and just all these decisions to make. Uh, and the, the same was true in, in the Reagan days. And while the Cold War and his confrontation with the Soviets is, of course, the central part of my book story, and, and it's there in the subtitle, the book also, as you know, tries to cover Asia policy and Middle East policy and counterterrorism and Central America and Africa and international economics because those are important, but because also Reagan was dealing with those at the time. And you cannot appreciate his Cold War policies, his Soviet policy, without understanding 
everything else that was crashing in uh, the inbox. Uh, again, as, as you aptly quote George Schultz there, the simultaneity of, of events, which just make it impossible for uh, any policymaker to focus on only one thing at a time, a luxury that scholars and journalists, of course, do have. Yeah, and I, d I wanted to ask you about that point about you working in the State Department, uh, National Security Council in the Bush 43 White House, that I mean, there definitely is a sense that the that your experience in the forge of policymaking, if you like, that it does it definitely does influence the way in which you write history. Yeah, I and I I hope it does uh, for for the better. Again, readers and reviewers, of course, can make up their own assessments on that. But uh, it's you know I don't want to overstate this. It's not like having been a policymaker gives me some sort of Rosetta Stone key to interpreting historical documents that that other scholars would not have, but. I do think, as as we were discussing, it gave me a uh, a sense for how all the different pieces of policy, the policy process, fit together for the uh, the almost unfathomable pressures that uh, that senior leaders are facing with all those different things coming in at once, and for how relatively smaller you know political factors can can loom seem to loom some, somewhat larger larger as well, uh, and um, and so I I hope that gives a, a certain amount of of realism to the story. And I think one of the things that you do so nicely in the book is, is that you do show how that, yes, there is the kind of complexity of policymaking, but it seems to me that one of the arguments of the book is that there's a, there's a relative simplicity and straightforwardness uh, about Reagan and the way in which he directs strategy. And I guess that's one of the reasons why you start the book uh, in 1982 with that famous uh, speech that he made in Westminster where he condemns Marxism, Leninism uh, to the ash heap of history. It's a good example of that clarity which he provides to the administration. Yeah. And that's where, on the one hand, you know, as I tried to describe in the book, Reagan became, you know, somewhat more involved in the details of a policy than was uh, in the complexities of it than was often appreciated. But at the end of the day, he had a, a simple clarity of vision and it was centered around, you know, a few key ideas. Uh, the, the strength and resilience and appeal of freedom, you know, political freedom, economic freedom, religious freedom, the illegitimacy of, of communism and, and communist tyranny, the importance, uh, the singularity, if, the, if you will, of American leadership in the world. And around those pillars, uh, he then you know, built some more sophisticated strategies. But for Reagan, it all came back to uh, those, those key pillars. And of course, also a belief in the vulnerability and fragility of so the Soviet system, which we know in hindsight he was absolutely correct on, but was recognized by very few experts at the time. And again, why why the historical context matters so much. Yeah, I'm often struck that that old uh, SNL uh, sketch where Reagan is in the Oval Office dealing with the complexity of policy, and then an aide comes in and says, Jimmy Stewart is here to see you. And then, and then he kind of goes back to being the kind of ineffectual, very pleasant, bumbling president. Then Jimmy Stewart leaves and then he's back to being the kind of the details guy and on top of everything. In a way, that sketch kind of it gets to some kind of truth about Reagan, doesn't it? That the the very friendly, outward going, amiable character uh, who was actually far more involved in policymaking in his own, own administration than perhaps people realized at the time. Yeah, yeah. And again, I, I love that sketch both because, well, it's very funny and it, it captured a lot of the public attitudes at the time. But also, as you point out, ironically, it was it was not so much pure satire as it was an exaggerated satire that actually got a little more to the truth, which few people realized at the time of 
uh, at least on you know the issues that mattered most to him. Of course, Soviet issues, arms control, um, support for democracy, uh, U.S. Uh, Asia policy. Reagan, with the archives now show, was a lot more involved and familiar with the details, and his diaries uh, show this as well. One of the things that I think you draw out so nicely in the book is this contradiction that lays that lies right at the heart of the the Cold War strategy. That on the one hand he wants to end the arms race, even eliminate uh, nuclear weapons, um, something that will bring him into conflict with allies. But uh, but it, but he also wanted to end communism and the Soviet Union. And the the key thing seems to be that you point out that he saw no contradiction between those apparently contradictory ideas. Yeah, and this is where uh, Reagan is just such, I think, an original thinker. I mean, uh, idiosyncratic, iconoclastic, but you know that was very much in defiance of most Cold War conventional wisdom at the time. But uh, he was, you know, a passionate nuclear abolitionist. He was terrified of nuclear weapons. You know, my friend Paul Leto wrote the authoritative book on this, you know, Ronald Reagan and his quest to abolish nuclear weapons. Um, but at the same time, Reagan was, you know, uh, fiercely opposed to Soviet communism too, and uh, and committed to a peaceful end to the Cold War. And so, the key to understanding him there is the sequencing. Is he felt like he needed to build up to build down. You know, he needed to uh, build up the American nuclear and conventional forces arsenal, build up American strength, uh, in order to come to a negotiating position where he could then get the Soviets and the United States together to agree to build down their arsenals, and and he hoped eventually to to abolish abolish nuclear, nuclear weapons. So he, he, he saw the Soviet system uh, and nuclear weapons as the two great threats to peace in the world, and he wanted to get rid of them both. Yeah, you have an interesting term for this that you call Reagan's Cold War strategy, one of creating a negotiated surrender. Uh, explain, what that, what that, explain to us what that means. Yeah, sure. It was my, and that term negotiated surrender, I'm glad you highlighted because it's central to the argument in my book, but I will admit it's a term that I came up with, you know, you won't find those exact words in, in Reagan's mouth, but it was my effort to summarize and make sense of these different strands of his policy. And uh, the great uh, University of Virginia historian Mel Leffler had put the puzzle well a few years ago. Was Reagan's goal in the Cold War to win it or to end it? Now, of course, those are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but they certainly point in some somewhat different directions. And so uh, my best way of accounting for all these different strands of Reagan's policy and his effort to prevent global destruction of the world and nuclear apocalypse, but also to uh, to end the Soviet system, was he did want to bring Soviet communism to a surrender. Uh, you know, he did not want to coexist with it, but he wanted to do it in a negotiated way rather than through a hot hot, hot war conflict. And that's where you know a key to understanding Reagan is how formative World War II was on him and his, in his generation. And, you know, FDR's, uh, you know, the Grand Alliance's goal in uh, World War II was unconditional surrender. And Reagan did not want to try to impose that on the Soviets. He knew that that was a losing proposition. So instead, he pursued a, a negotiated surrender. Yeah, and, and it, it does point to this other aspect that you bring out, that Reagan, as well as having this clarity of vision, he is also a pragmatist in the, in the way in which he operates. Yeah, I mean, he's uh, you know, deeply committed to his, his principles, but very pragmatic in, in seeing how they will be implemented. And, uh, and again, this sometimes drove uh, similar purists uh, or ideologues within the conservative camp crazy who, who thought that he was being too, too pragmatic. But, you know, remember, as you know, he had uh, earlier in his life been a Hollywood labor negotiator. Uh, he knew that in any negotiation, nobody is going to get 100% of what they want. You've always got to be willing to compromise. And so 
uh, and and work with you know whoever you can't always choose who's going to be across the table from you. Uh, and so that that pragmatic part of him was uh, willing to take the best deals he could get, even if they weren't perfect. Yeah, you do also talk in the book uh, of uh, doing a, a certain amount of moral accounting. I, I seem to, I seem to remember you call it that. You know, there are there are things that he gets wrong that uh, or where he's outmaneuvered things like supporting a part of the apartheid regime in South Africa, uh, other authoritarian regimes, the Iran Contra scandal. You know, there there are serious questions to be asked, are, are there not about the about the administration? Yeah, and you know, I hope readers will see in in um, in the book that while it's overall a favorable, very favorable assessment of Reagan and his record, it is not a hagiography. And I try to be, you know, make fair-minded but honest assessments of things that he and his administration got wrong. Uh, you know, my standards always looking at what were the realistic alternatives available to them. And in a number of these cases, there there were other alternatives. And so he was a he was a, a lousy manager, uh, and you know, presided over a lot of feuding and backbiting in the administration. He made some you know, terrible decisions when it came to uh, Iran Contra, especially his authorizing, you know, selling arms to the the Iranian regime for you know illusory hostage uh, releases. Uh, early his first couple of years as president, in particular, he was uh, too too uh, um, uh, unconditional in his support for some really thuggish military regimes. Later, you know, he and George Shultz are uh, much more consistent in pushing a course for democracy. And yeah, with the South African apartheid regime, I think one of his low moments is in 1986 when he vetoes the sanctions bill. And again, I try to tell that story fairly as far as how it came about. But I, I still find that, you know, a, um, an inex- inexcusable decision and one that he clearly uh, re- regretted as well. That's interesting. We had uh, John Farrell on the show recently talking about his new biography of Ted Kennedy. Uh, and I, I was I was struck in that that uh, Kennedy, even though in many ways uh, he and Reagan were pol- strong political opponents, South Africa would be a good example of that. Nevertheless, Reagan that Reagan and Kennedy had this very gracious relationship towards each other. And I wondered, do you think that was one of the things really that saved Reagan when it came to Iran Contra that uh, people did people did not wield the knife ultimately because he was seen as somebody who was essentially a decent person, and he had tried to reach across the aisle uh, at different times, including on issues of foreign policy. Yeah, I think that's certainly a part of it. And, and I'm glad you had John Farrell on. I've, I've not read the entirety of that book, but I've read the uh, portions of it dealing with Reagan. I thought it was just wonderful. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's an excellent book. Yeah, so touching Reagan, you know, speaking at the fundraising um, dinner for the JFK Library. Exactly, and having Rose Kennedy back to the, to the White House for the first time since JFK. And also on policy, using Teddy Kennedy as a covert back channel to the Kremlin, right? I mean, he was, you know, a really effective uh, back channel emissary there. Yeah, I do think that um, Reagan's friendships with a number of Democrats and his outreach there had created some residual goodwill, uh, uh, capital, you know, a capital reserve of goodwill, which he really needed to draw on when he was navigating uh, Iran-Contra. Um, and then, you know, without going too far off into the weeds on Iran-Contra, you know, some of the investigators uh, in turn overreached, I think, and uh, it was a bad enough scandal on substance, but tried to take make it even further and even worse than it, than it actually actually was. So um, plenty of lessons learned for all parties involved in that one. Now, one of the things that I found genuinely intriguing, and I think very original too uh, in the book, was that this element that you develop, that you remind us that this was that he became president at a time when California is emerging uh, as so pivotal in the, the modern world and particularly the, the American future. 
uh, and remind us that Reagan was in fact a California president. Why, why do you think that that was important? And, and is that part of the, the originality that you were talking about earlier? Yeah, I'm glad you noticed that because I do think that his California roots are really important part of the story. And just, you know, in a couple of ways I can highlight. The first is uh, with Silicon Valley being located, uh, of course, in, in California and you know, Reagan having been you know, governor during you know, some of the initial Silicon Valley boom. He has deep optimism about American innovation and technology, and that becomes so key to um, his, the particulars of his defense modernization, but also just his belief in the American economy, uh, you know, not just kind of industrial productivity, but innovation, entrepreneurship, uh, leading the world in technology innovation. Uh, that was in his blood because of he was a Californian. Another part of his, uh, two other parts of his California identity are geography, um, both California being a border state uh, and him being, you know, deeply committed to U.S.-Mexico relations and improving and, and improving uh, U.S. image in Central and South America. And then, of course, California being a Pacific state and Reagan deep, you know, being strongly uh, prioritizing Asia in his in his global policy, especially U.S.-Japan relations. Uh I think those uh, can be explained, at least in part, with his California roots. And Hollywood, of course. How, how did that influence the way that uh, one of his biographers called The Role of a Lifetime? Yeah, yeah. The, the great Luke Cannon biography. Yeah, of course. And this is where Reagan would often be derided by his critics as a B-movie actor. But I think there's a more nuanced and in some ways favorable understanding that this is a man who saw uh, life, who saw the presidency as this great drama, who sees the Cold War as a great drama. And as one of his best speechwriters, Tony Dolan, pointed out, as an actor, as a dramatist, he's able to envision a different ending. You know, he wanted to re rewrite the script, if you will. He's able to envision a different, a different ending. And also part of the presidency is the pageantry, is the statecraft. And that's part of communicating to your own public and to the world. And so he he put great effort into his most notable speeches, uh, into the setting and delivery of them. And, you know, critics can dismiss that as somewhat facile. I think it's it's part and parcel of him appreciating the importance of maintaining political and popular support for the fairly dramatic new directions he was trying to, to take the country and, and, and the world. Um, and so I think his, his Hollywood background served him well in that respect. And thinking about uh, contemporary politics, of course, Joe Biden was uh, first elected in the in the 1970s to the Senate at, at the same time as the rise of Ronald Reagan. Um, you know, I wonder what what do you think there are the uh, or, or rather are there any uh, similarities? Do you think between uh, Joe Biden and that particular period that link these two presidents? Yeah, I mean, I think there. That's a very good question. Uh, I, I, Reagan and Biden, in a lot of ways, are pretty different characters. And of course, even though they were coming, they made their big debuts in Washington at roughly the same time. You know, Biden elected in 1972, and of course, Reagan's arrival a few years later in 1980. I think there was, a, you know, a decent amount of mutual uh, regard between between the two. Biden, in a lot of ways, I think is a more conventional political figure, where than 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 Reagan. Um, you see, of course, some affinities between the two of them for work, you know, reaching across the aisle, for believing in a distinctive role for America in, in the world. Uh, at the same time, at least from this moment, we're sitting two years into the, the Biden presidency. He has thus far not displayed um, a lot of the strategic imagination or dynamism that we that we see in the in the Reagan presidency. And what about the Republican Party? Is it is it still the party of Reagan recognizably, do you think? Oh, this is the big question. Um, well, I'll, I'll answer it in a couple of ways. Um, first, 
most elected Republicans today and even most grassroots Republicans, whether they were alive in the Reagan years or not, um, would still want to identify as Reagan Republicans, right? So most Republicans see Reagan as, you know, the last unambiguously successful two-term Republican president as one of our greatest presidents. And, you know, I would, I would share, I would share that assessment. Uh, however, when you look at a lot of the particulars of what Reagan stood for or how he comported himself, uh, there are some more worrisome signs uh, among parts of the party today. You know, on on issues, Reagan is deeply committed to allies, to promoting human rights and democracy, to open and free trade. You know, he fought fiercely against against protectionism, um, and uh, having a more hopeful and optimistic and forward leaning and unifying vision for for the American people and for America's role role in the world. Uh, and uh, those qualities, some Republicans today would still obviously uh, claim those, but um, many others, uh, certainly in the era of Trump and Trumpism, uh, have gone in some, some different directions. And so I guess my appeal would be, uh, if you want to call yourself a Reagan Republican, and I, I do myself and I hope others do, uh, let's live up to it as well. And finally, you say that that Reagan uh, drew uh, or draws parallels with the best of Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy and Nixon. Where do you think that his, his historical legacy lies? On the one hand, as you point out, I think he's very much in the continuity with those leaders you mentioned, both in terms of uh, efforts to uh, build the, the right institutions and instruments uh, and vision for a sustainable and successful Cold War policy uh, and believing in a distinctive role for America leading the world and leading our allies and so on. Um, on the other hand, I think Reagan is unique even among them. You know, as I point out in the book, they had all envisioned the Cold War as primarily a great power contest that happened to have a battle of ideas component to it. Uh, and Reagan reversed that. Uh, he didn't see the Cold War. He saw the Cold War as primarily a battle of ideas that happened to be laid on top of a great power contest. And and from that, the others had all tried to manage the Cold War to contain the Soviet Union. And Reagan, you know, was much more audacious in in envisioning actually defeating the the Soviet Union and transforming the Cold War. Uh, and so that's why I think he is uh, sui generis. So the book is The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War and the World on the Brink. It's written by my guest, William Imboden, and published by Dutton. Uh, but for now, Will, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thanks so much, Richard. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.